In my study of the Psalms leading into this series, I looked at 103 as a very familiar psalm, probably as a familiar psalm. I imagined it would be easy to preach on. And so I continued my study and I went looking to see what other commentators were saying about the psalm. And as I did so, I got more and more intimidated by this task of preaching on this text. Now, if you've heard of Charles Spurgeon, the 19th century Baptist preacher from London, England, he's written a portion describing his view or his vantage point looking at this psalm. And it's one of the most uh, brilliantly written couple of sentences you may ever, ever lay eyes on. So I've got it here on the screen. This is what Spurgeon, this is how Spurgeon encouraged me going into this morning. He says, our attempt at exposition is commenced under an impressive sense of the utter impossibility of doing justice to so sublime a composition. We call upon our soul and all that is within us to aid in the pleasurable task. But alas, our soul is finite and our all of mental faculty far too little for the enterprise. There is too much in the psalm for a thousand pens to write. It is one of those all-comprehending scriptures, which is a Bible in itself, and it might alone almost suffice for the hymn book of the church. Well, so I read that and I thought, maybe I could just skip Psalm 103 and move on to an easier one. Because if Psalm 103 was daunting for Charles Spurgeon, how much more daunting is it for this preacher. And so what I decided to do, uh, to be able to to frame this in a way that I could manage, is I want to focus our attention this morning on the first five verses of the psalm. I wanted the whole psalm read to give you the context and the overarching themes, but our focus this morning will simply be the first five verses. And once we've unpacked these five verses, I would like us to consider our application of the same. Now, I'm going to read a slightly different translation. This is probably the translation that most of you are familiar with. It goes, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless His holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all His benefits, who forgives all your sins and heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with love and compassion who satisfies your desires with good things, so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. So God's gracious dealings with us can be seen both in what He gives us and also in what He takes away from us. The first thing that God does when He favors a person is He takes away their sins. Spurgeon again frames it this way, Till iniquity is forgiven, healing, redemption, and satisfaction are unknown blessings. Forgiveness is the first in the order of our spiritual experience, and in some respects it is first in value. David expands the nature of this blessing in verses 10 and 12. He says, God does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. David goes on, as far as the east is from the west, 
so far has he removed our transgressions from us. I want you to notice David's reference to justice here. Because in our day and age, we're very concerned with justice. We cling to our rights and we want people to get what they deserve. But David says that our sins deserve a particular response from God. But we're spared from that. Our sins, we're told, deserve a particular payment or a particular wage. But we, again, are not paid what we are deserving of. And this is a blessing. So in this instance, we don't want justice. We don't want what's coming to us. When David tells us we don't get what our sins deserve, we don't get the wages for our sin, he's announcing an extremely good thing. I'm also intrigued by David's language regarding the quality of God's forgiveness. The quality of God's forgiveness. I say this because I fear that when we sometimes forgive others, we do so partially. We may understand the importance or the need to forgive people, but in my experience, maybe I shouldn't universalize my own experience, but many of us, I suspect, forgive partially. That is, we forgive for the moment, we set aside the offense that is committed against us, but should the person repeat that offense, should they do it again, then that sin or offense we set aside, we will bring back into view and present our case against the offending party. God's forgiveness is not like this at all. God's forgiveness is definitive. God's forgiveness is final. It's permanent. David says, as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. The first thing God does when he favors a person is he takes away their sins. And this is not only first in order, but probably first in importance. The second great blessing is the twin, what I'll call the twin blessing of God's love and compassion. Because if you look through the whole of Psalm 103, you'll see these words paired throughout. Once we've been forgiven, David tells us in verse 4, that God crowns us with both love and compassion. Well, why does he do this? Why does God crown us with these particular attributes? He crowns us with love and compassion because these attributes are primary to God's nature. Love and compassion is primary to who God is, and so accordingly He crowns His children with the same. We see in verse 8, the Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in love. We read on in the psalm and we see that the Lord has compassion on those who fear Him. The Lord's love is with those who fear Him. Now as we talk about God's benefits this morning, I wouldn't want you to think that an infinite God is limited to blessing us in three ways. In forgiving us, in loving us, and showing compassion. I'm not suggesting for a moment that there are only three blessings we receive from God. 
But I would put forward this, that all subsequent blessings can be found flowing from those three. That the root of the tree, the source of the fountain, if you will, begins with forgiveness, love, and compassion. And every other good thing you receive from God's hand flows from those three. It begins with the forgiveness of our sins. A right relationship with God needs to be established. And once we have that right relationship, God's compassionate and loving nature inclines Him to impart the same qualities on us. If you're a parent, you know what it's like to long for your children to have certain characteristics that you have. Maybe it's their appearance. You take pride in the fact that they look a bit like you or a lot like you. But as they grow up, you begin to take joy in the fact that your children also have those same character traits. Those same positive qualities. You can see them in yourself and your child is taking after you. So in the same way, our God, our Heavenly Father, who is loving and compassionate, longs to impart these same qualities to us. And as I think about how we might apply these blessings in our life, I want to give you two corresponding applications that immediately emerge for me. And the first is this. God's all cannot be praised with anything less than our all. God's all, the sum of who He is, the sum of what He's done, God's all cannot be praised with anything less than our all. David gets this. He says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless His holy name. The nature and the extent of God's favor towards us requires our best possible response. Now, I don't want to sound unkind, but I have great difficulty understanding how a person's worship of God could be consistently half-hearted and occasional. As we talked about last Sunday, our response to God, our response to anything, should be proportionate to the gift that is given to us. In other words, the bigger the gift, the bigger the response. And again, I'd like to quote Isaac Watts' favorite lyrics, or famous lyrics, Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were an offering far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my life, my soul, my all. Now I don't want to make it sound like I give, it, give God my all 100% of the time. There are slips in my devotion. There are slips in my affections to God. And as I consider those seasons, those times, when I'm not giving God my all, I'm baffled by it. As I think about all that He's done for me. 
As I think about all that God has done for me in Christ, I marvel that I could give Him anything less than my very best. Dear friends, God's all cannot be praised with anything less than our all. That's the first application. The second application may be equally difficult, maybe for some even more challenging. The second application is this. We need to crown others with the love and the compassion with which we were first cracked. So God comes along in our life, He forgives us, He crowns us with love and compassion, and then the natural application is for us to crown others with the love and compassion we've received. This is important because there are some who would like to isolate their relationship with God and keep it separate from their other relationships. There are people who would say, well, uh, what I do with God is is my own personal thing and and I don't really let it affect the other parts of my life. It's it's a private thing between me and God and, and I keep it separate. And yet everything that Jesus tells us in the Gospels would suggest to me that if we are worshiping God rightly, it will inevitably spill over and affect and transform our human relationships. Think, for example, of Jesus answering the question about which is the greatest commandment of all. He begins by saying, Well, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. But then he immediately follows that answer by also saying, Love your neighbor as yourself. You see, how we treat others indicates the degree to which we have understood God's dealings with us. There's an easy way to test yourself on this, and I'd like you to uh, silently and privately give yourself this test. There's an easy way to evaluate whether or not you are crowning others with love and compassion. And the way to test yourself on this is to evaluate how you have treated those who have wronged you and those who have mistreated you. The the, the test for this is how have you treated, how have you extended yourself for those who have wronged you or offended you? And now that's not my standard. That's not Bryn McPhail giving you a difficult challenge from the pulpit. This is the standard Jesus gives in the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus says in Matthew 5, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. And this is the really uh, challenging and convicting part. He says, if you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that. I'm massively challenged by this. I'm hugely challenged by this. Because what we're, we can fill in the blanks here. It's, it's, it's a good thing when you demonstrate love toward your parents. It is a good thing when you demonstrate love toward your spouse, or toward your children, or toward your friends. 
But Jesus says that does not identify you in any special way. In other words, you don't score many points with God when you love someone who loves you back. You may have a great relationship with members of your family. You may be an outstanding friend to people, but you aren't necessarily identifying yourself as a Christian when you do these things. Because even the worst of sinners can love those who love them. Even an atheist can love those who love him. What sets God's people apart is that we have the capacity to love people the way God loves people. Well, what does that look like? Can we even say what God's love looks like? We can because it's revealed to us in Scripture. What does God's love look like? Romans 5. God demonstrates His own love for us in this. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. Notice that God did not wait for us to clean ourselves up. Paul says, while we were sinners, He redeemed us. A little further on in Romans 5, Paul says, When we were God's enemies, He reconciled us through His Son. You see, Jesus' command to love your enemies wasn't something He pulled out of midair. It wasn't as if Jesus was going, Okay, what difficult challenge will I put before them today? Oh, I'm going to tell them to love their enemies. That'll be a good one. Just came to mind. I think they'll struggle with it, but it's good that they struggle. No, this is... This is a theme throughout the New Testament. Extending love to enemies is God's way of doing business. It's His normal way of operating. Now I realize it's not a popular thing to hear that we were once God's enemies. It's not fun to say in the pulpit. Imagine if I charged you with inviting others to come to the Kirk. What might you say? Well, you should really come to the Kirk. Our preacher regularly tells us about how once we were enemies of God and how while we were sinners and doing terrible... No, I, I don't enjoy talking about these negative things. But this is, this is how deeply God has loved us. He did not wait for us to get clean. He made us clean. He did not wait for us to extend a peace offering. He made the peace offering. God came to us when we were alienated to Him. When we were His enemies. When we were dead in our trespasses and sins. Or as Paul says to the Ephesians, when we were by nature objects of wrath. I know this is not fun stuff to say from the pulpit. Good morning everyone. Great to have you here this morning. You know you are all objects of wrath, or at least you once were, before Christ reached into your life and said, It's not fun. Our predicament was dire. The wrath of God loomed large over us. The prospect of hell was real. And is real. But because of His great love for us, says Paul, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. 
Dear friend, if the compassionate God described by David has redeemed you, if the merciful God described by Paul has saved you, the question I have for you this morning is this. Are you rich in mercy toward those who have offended you? Are you rich in mercy towards those who have wronged you? Now I realize that the spectrum of offense is huge. And I readily admit that if we have been subject to a more heinous offense, mercy and forgiveness will be less easy to come by. But I want us to at least look at the more common offenses we encounter so that we can use these common offenses to ask ourselves how we are doing in showing mercy to those who have wronged us. So a few examples. You find out that someone who you thought was your friend is talking negatively about you behind your back. Another person whom you've come to know and trust has been dishonest with you and told you a lie. Still another person whom, whose friendship you coveted excludes you from a gathering to which you had hoped to be invited. Someone else you know steals from you, takes something valuable from you. A close family member betrays you and your trust in them. How do we respond to such things? I think our natural response in the flesh is to retaliate. At the very least, we're tempted, I think, to shun those who have shunned us. We say things like, well, who needs them anyway? If they're going to be this kind of negative person, I can do without them. I'm just going to stay away from them. But what if God worked this way with us? What if God's dealings with us matched this? Because we've offended God more times than I can number. My sins against God are incalculable. And yet he doesn't deal with me according to my sins. I want to assure you that I have done nothing to win God's favor. I have done absolutely, there's nothing in my life I can point to where I can say, Hope God was watching because I merited his favor. There's nothing in my life. Bryn McPhail was once an enemy of God. Bryn McPhail was once dead in his transgressions. Bryn McPhail was an object of God's wrath. And the reason I stand before you today has nothing to do with a profound turnaround that I initiated. I stand here today because God was merciful to me, a sinner. God's mercy, not dealing with me as my sins deserved. And once we get that, once we get how God has dealt with us, it is then we will come to appreciate our need to demonstrate love and compassion and mercy to those who have hurt and injured us. How important is this? 
So important, it's a key part of the prayer that Jesus taught to his disciples. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who have trespassed against us. There is a condition that's built in. Because God has forgiven us in Christ, we must forgive others. It's so easy to drift from this perspective, isn't it? It's easy to cling to our own sense of justice. And, and we've got to judge among us. I don't want to make it sound like justice isn't important. Justice is extremely important. It's extremely important. But as I say that, I want us all to realize God didn't deal with us justly. We didn't receive justice from God. We received forgiveness. That's not what we deserved. We didn't deserve forgiveness. We didn't deserve righteousness. We didn't deserve divine blessing. God didn't give us justice. Instead, He crowned us with love and with compassion. And He calls us to crown others with a similar love and similar compassion. Now, here's a few take-homes. What will this look like in very practical terms? I hope, even though it may have been hard to do, painful to do, I hope that as I've spoken this morning, names have come to your mind. People's faces, people who have hurt you, people who have offended you, have said bad things about you. What do we do with that? Well, for some of us, it might mean going straight home after we have some coffee and cookies, but then we go straight home And we pick up the phone and we call this person. And while they may not deserve your forgiveness, it's in your best interest to forgive them. Forgiveness isn't letting someone else off the hook. It's letting you live. To be free from anger. To be free from bitterness. It's not so much for their benefit, but for yours. Because God has forgiven you And you know deep down inside, you need to pick up the phone and call that person today. It may also mean that you seize the opportunity to be generous with someone you barely know or don't know at all. Because God's generosity uh, does not give deference to those in closest proximity to Him. He would have us extend hospitality even to strangers. Or here's another practical application which will hopefully be of service to many of you. If you work in an environment where there are more than, say, six other people, undoubtedly there are fellow employees who drive you absolutely crazy. Absolutely crazy. Undoubtedly. And if you are in a workplace, in an environment where people are driving you absolutely nuts, the temptation is to stay clear of those people. I want to suggest to you the very opposite. I want to suggest to you that you zero in on those people and you give them a showering of love and kindness like you've never shown before. Because that will give you a sense, that will give you a small taste of what God has done with you. 
If we are serious about being Christ-like, we cannot take shortcuts or half measures. We cannot ignore difficult commands like the one to love our enemies. Half measures will not do. God's all cannot be praised with anything less than our all. God's kindness towards us needs to translate into practical ways in which we are being kind and loving toward others. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless His holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and never, ever forget His countless benefits towards you. Amen.